Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. Who is Jesus? That is the most important question that you will ever ask yourself in this life. Who is Jesus? The way that you answer this question determines the way that you answer every question, determines who you date, who you marry, how you raise your kids, where you work, where you go to church, not only the decisions you make in this life, but it also determines where you spend your eternal life. Everything hinges and hangs upon this question, who is Jesus? History hangs on this question. Heaven and hell, your destiny and eternity depends on how you answer this question, the most important question, who is Jesus. Many people say that Jesus was just a man, that he was a good man who did some good things and lived a good, decent, moral life, but they do not believe that he is and was who he said he was, the Messiah, the Holy One, the Chosen One of God. Others say that Jesus was just a myth, that he was folklore or fairy tale, that it's just a nice little story that we tell our kids to be able to give hope so they can grow up and have morals and values and know how to treat other people. Some people answer that question, who is Jesus, by saying he was just a man. Some people say that he was just a myth, but then there are some of us who are here today who believe that he was more than just a man, that he was the God-man. Some say that he was more than just a myth because all of the legends are true, that he is, in fact, who he said he was, the Messiah, the Holy One, the Chosen One of God, the Christ, the King, the Lord of Lords, who rules and reigns over all of eternity. Jesus is more than a man. Jesus is more than a myth. Jesus is the Messiah. And that's what we're going to be investigating and looking at today. If you have your Bibles, we're continuing through the book of Mark in a sermon called The Simple Gospel. We're in Mark chapter 12, verse 35 through 37. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there today in a sermon called Jesus the Messiah. We're going to look at the claims that the Bible makes about the life of Jesus. And we're going to see verifiably, undeniably, historically, and accurately that Jesus really is who he said he was, really did the things that he said he did. And in three verses, I'm going to have 25 points to this sermon. We're going to do three verses, 25 points in Old Testament Bible study to show you with accurate detail the prophecies that predicted the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, Mark 12, 35 through 37, we're going to see that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's go ahead, read it all up front. And then I want to give you 25 prophecies about the life of Christ. Here's what we see in verse 35. And as, what's the word? Jesus, sorry to wake you up from your nap. Jesus, that's who we're going to be talking about today. Jesus, let me hear you say his name. Jesus, Jesus. there is power in the name of Jesus. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say 
that the Christ is the son of David. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he also his son? And the great throng, the crowds, they heard him gladly. This is the fifth and the final and what theologians call the temple controversies of Christ that Jesus, he is preaching in the temple. It's the last week of his life. For three years, Jesus has been in public ministry, preaching, teaching, healing, casting out demons, performing miracles. And he has made his way into Jerusalem on the final week of his life where he is preaching in the temple. On the Monday of Holy Week during the Passover celebration, Jesus comes riding in on a donkey in what is known as the triumphal entry. And great crowds gather around and they're waving palms branches and they're throwing their cloaks as Jesus enters in. And here's what they're saying. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David. What does Jesus say here in Mark 12? The son of David. So the triumphant entry was a prophetic declaration of the messianic identity of Christ, where he is revealed as the coming king. Well, this upsets the religious leaders. For the three years, they've been fighting with opposing and arguing with Christ. In fact, back in Mark chapter three, they begin plotting the murder of Jesus himself. So they're not very happy when Jesus comes in riding on a donkey, all right? They're pretty upset about that because others are declaring he is the Messiah and they hate him, oppose him, reject him, despise him, and they don't want nothing to do with him. So the next day, Jesus comes into the temple and he starts flipping over tables, driving out the money changers, and he will not let anybody enter and exit the temple. This also really upsets the religious leaders. So the next day, Jesus wakes up Wednesday morning and he decides, you know what? That temple flipping was so much fun. Let's go back and let's do it again. So he gets up in the morning, he stretches, ugh, eats his Cheerios, and then he goes into the temple and he begins preaching. And he's teaching, and as he's giving his sermon, the religious leaders walk in and they interrupt Jesus' sermon. That's very rude, okay? Some of y'all, your phones go off when I'm preaching. That's rude. But the religious leaders, they interrupt Jesus in the middle of his sermon and they say, <clears throat> Jesus, we need a word with you. Thus beginning the five temple controversies. Now, the first controversy was when the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 ruling elders, they come up and they say, Jesus, who do you think that you are? And that's exactly what we're going to be answering today, who Jesus says that he is. The second is a group of men known as the Pharisees and the Herodians. And they ask a question about paying taxes because they don't like paying their taxes. In 2000 years, not a lot has changed. Amen. People still don't like paying their taxes. And so Jesus answers a question regarding taxes. The following week is the Sadducees. They come and they ask a question about eternal life. Now, if you remember the Sadducees, they don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in heaven. That's where they get their name, the Sadducees, because when you don't believe in those things, you're sad, you see. It didn't hit as good the second time, but the first time it was golden. It was golden, all right? And then last week we saw there's a question about the Old Testament and the law, four questions, four accusations, interrogations against Jesus, and he withstands them all. I mean, it is like a battle royale, royal rumble. I mean, it is the gauntlet. It's round one, round two, round three, round four. The Pharisees over the top turnbuckle for an object. <laughs> 
boom, Jesus wins the fight, the argument. Mike dropped Jesus. He defended himself and he silenced his accusers. That's why in verse 33, it says, the religious leaders, they had no more questions. That is the Greek word of saying they peed their pants and ran away. That's what it's saying. And so Jesus now in the fifth controversy, he has a question for them. He says, you've asked me four questions. Let me ask you one question. Who do you say that I am? Who is the Messiah? This is a question about the Messiah. In fact, if you look in your Bibles, go ahead and look down right there. It says this word Christ, that Christ would be the son of David. But David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. How can David say, how can you say he is David's son when David himself calls him the Lord? That word Christ there, that's not Jesus' last name. Okay, that's what we think. We think that Christ was Jesus' last name, like Jimmy Lestage, like Trevor Knox, like Brandon Stacy, like Byron Ellis, Jesus Christ. But that's not his last name. In fact, the word Christ is a title. This is the same way as saying Pastor Byron or Doctor or Professor. It's a title, and here's what it means. It means king. It means the Holy One. It means the Anointed One. It literally means the Messiah, the Promised One of the Old Testament, who has come to ransom, rescue, redeem, and to save the world. And so what Jesus is saying is this, how can you say that the Messiah is just a man? Because even David recognizes the Messiah as his Lord. See, the Messiah would not just be the son of David. The Messiah will also be the savior of David. Come to forgive David of his sins. Look at the word there. It says, my Lord says to my Lord. Man, that's confusing. Is God talking to himself? Is he a little crazy? Some of y'all talk to yourselves. Don't worry, you're not crazy. You're only crazy if you answer yourself. But the Lord said to my Lord. So God is talking to David's God. Now, that word Lord, the first one is the capital Lord. You might see that in your Bible, all capital letters. That means Yahweh. It is the tetragrammaton. We studied that a few weeks ago. It's the holy revered name of God, tetragrammaton. Go ahead and say that out loud, tetragrammaton. God bless you. Make sure you use hand sanitizer and wash your hands. Okay, tetragrammaton. But the tetragrammaton, God, Yahweh God, says to who? My Lord, God is talking to God under the power of the Holy Spirit. What's going on there? We're seeing the doctrine of the Trinity take place. That the Holy Spirit says that Yahweh, God the Father, speaks to the Lord. Who's that? That's the Messiah. That's the Christ. That is the Son of God. That Jesus not only would be the Son of David, but he would also be the Savior of David, that the Messiah himself is not just a man, like some people say he is. The Messiah is not just a myth, like some people would say that he is. The Messiah is something more. The Messiah is the Son of God who has come to save us from our sins. See, some people think that Jesus was just a man, and they'll say, Jesus never declared himself to be God. That's not true. If you say that, it's because you never read your Bible. Because Jesus over and over again repeatedly declared himself to be God. This is one instance among many that we've already studied in Mark where Jesus declares himself to be God. He is not just a man. And he is not just a myth. He is more than a man, more than a myth. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, in those days, the religious leaders, they believed that the Messiah would just be a man. 
that he would be a political leader, that he would come and overthrow Rome. But what does Jesus do? He comes and he tells them to pay their taxes. They didn't like this. They thought he was going to be a religious leader. And then Jesus spends his entire ministry fighting against religious people. They thought he was going to come in in might and glory and that he was going to come and get rid of all of the Gentiles. But instead he cleanses the temple for the Gentiles. They thought he was going to come in and he was going to get rid of all the poor, but he loves the poor. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He preaches sermons, perform miracles, and he is not the Messiah that they were expecting, but he is the Messiah that they needed. And they rejected him and they wanted nothing to do with him because they thought the Messiah would be merely a man. Some people thought he would be a myth. He hadn't come in over a thousand years. Maybe he's not coming. He hasn't shown up yet, so maybe he's not showing up. It hasn't happened yet, so maybe the prophecies aren't true. Maybe they're just folklore or fairy tale to be able to help us to deal with the situations that we're in, to inspire us to believe and to ascend and some better moral values or codes for our life. And some people believed he was a man. Some people believed he was a myth. But here in this section, what we see is that he is more than a man. He is more than a myth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the very, very Son of God. And why do you think people reject God? Why do you think people deny the claims of Christianity? Here's what I think. I think for two reasons. The first reason is due to a lack of evidence. That some of you, you're here today and you don't believe in Christ because there's a lack of evidence. You don't know what you don't know. And so you can't know what you don't know because there's a lack of evidence. Romans and Paul, he actually says this, how can they believe unless nobody tells them? So here's what I'm gonna do. If the reason why you're struggling to come to faith is due to a lack of evidence, I'm gonna give you more than enough evidence to make the most important decision of your life to answer the question, who is Jesus? So I'm gonna give you some evidence today. But if that evidence is not enough, you have to seriously ask yourself, is it due to a lack of evidence Or do you not believe the claims of Christianity because of your own arrogance? Because the religious leaders, they had all of the evidence and they still refused to make a decision, not because of the evidence presented before them, but because of the arrogance in their own heart, that they didn't want to submit to anyone other than themselves. And if you answer this question, who is Jesus? And you're intellectually honest with yourself. You open up your heart and your mind and you believe that he is who he said he was. Then everything in your life is going to have to change. The way that you live, the way that you work, the way that you love, the way that you spend your money, raise your kids, the things that you do in the dark, all of those things are going to have to change in your life because you are no longer the authority over your life. You realize that there is an ultimate reality. There is an ultimate authority, and it's going to change the course of all of you in history, including your own, if you were to come to the terms that he is who he said he was. Do you believe because of a lack of evidence, or you do disbelieve because of your own arrogance? The religious leaders, they couldn't believe, they wouldn't believe, not due to evidence, but due to arrogance. How is this possible? I think Mark 12, 24, the previous section actually gives us a clue into how this works. Here's what Jesus says. Is this not the reason that you are wrong? You say, that sounds pretty defensive. Yes, it is because you're wrong. You say, but I I mean, like, I think that Jesus is a good man. Okay, you're wrong. You say, but I think he's just a myth that we made up. Okay, but you're wrong. You say, but that's your opinion. I know. 
and your opinion is wrong and my opinion is right because Jesus says you are wrong. See, that sounds very exclusive. It is because there is one way to eternal life and that is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus says you're wrong, but Jesus is one way of many ways and Jesus would say you're wrong. All religions basically teach the same thing. No, they don't. Go to a Muslim and tell them that Jesus is Lord. They will not think that they all teach the same thing. Go ask a Christian scientist if we believe the same thing. They will say, no, we do not believe the same thing because they're wrong and you're wrong. And you say, that sounds like you're telling me I'm wrong. Then you get the point. <laughs> and I'm not telling you you're wrong. Jesus says flat out right here, you are wrong. So if you're mad about it, take it up with Jesus, not with me, because Jesus is the one who said you're wrong. And why are you wrong? Because you neither believe in the scriptures nor the power of God. When you divorce yourself from the scriptures, you're limiting the power of God from working in your life. That this word is true, this word is trustworthy, this word is God's word to us. We don't have to guess, we don't have to speculate about who he is, what he does, because he has perfectly revealed himself to us through his word. Every single word in here is true. From the table of contents to the maps in the back, this is the word of God to us, and it is the power of God in our life. You can trust it, you can believe in it, and we base our lives around it. God wants you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt who he is. So he wrote his word spoken to you so you can know and you can have all the evidence that you need. And when you believe in the word of God, you'll experience the power of God in your life, the life-changing, mind-altering, legacy-leaving, life changed through Jesus that comes from knowing the word of God and applying it to your life. But if you don't study the scriptures, you will not experience the soul-saving, life-changing salvation of God for your life because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. So here's what I'm gonna do for you today. I'm gonna give you all of the evidence that you need. The religious leaders, they would have known these in the back of their minds. And as they're face to face with Jesus, when he says, my Lord says to my Lord, it would have clicked in their heads. This is a messianic prophecy. He is declaring himself to be God. And they would run through all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And they would begin to see that Jesus is who he said he is and did the things that he said he did because God has revealed it to us through his word. So what I wanna do is I'm gonna share with you 25 prophecies from the Old Testament that prove Jesus is the Messiah. For the rest of the sermon, here's basically what I'm gonna be doing. I'm just gonna be reading the Bible, okay? How many of you love the Bible? Redemption, we love the Bible. Okay, I'm just gonna be reading the Bible to you for the remainder of this sermon, and I'm gonna go super fast because here's what we know. Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing the very word of God, that God's word, it works. And it's the only thing that brings truth and grace into your life. And so we study the word, we believe the word, and I'm fixing to open up the Bible and I'm going to preach God's word over you, showing you 25 prophecies of the Old Testament that prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Listen, some of these prophecies are hundreds, if not even thousands of years old. And they're describing the life of Jesus with accurate detail that God himself is looking down the corridor of all of human history and he has given you all of the evidence that you need to be able to make the most important decision of your life. Who is Jesus? And so God, he reveals himself to us, the ultimate plan 
that God himself would come, ransom, rescue, redeem, and save us from our sins. And so God writes it all to us in a book, anticipating the coming of the Lord Jesus. At the time of the writings, 25% of the Bible is prophetic in nature. This is a, not just any book. This is a library of books. This is a book written in three languages across three continents over a period of 1,500 years by some 40 different authors. And they all say the same thing and they do not contradict one another. I mean, we can't even get politicians to agree. Do you think that we could get men from 1,500 years to agree on things? I mean, y'all can't even decide what you're gonna eat for lunch when church gets out. And yet there is unanimity in the authors of the scriptures from three continents in three languages over 1,500 years, 40 different authors all saying the same thing, that Jesus is the Messiah. So here's what I'm going to do, okay? Y'all need to go ahead and pick your jaws up off the floor, okay? Because your mind's already blown. We have a cleaning crew come pick up after the second service because there was brains and head explosions everywhere after what I'm about to show you. It's incredible. So here's what I'm going to do. Okay, get ready. You're like, you're not going to be able to take notes this fast. So there's notes already printed out for you. And so I want you to pull out your sermon notes and I want you to fill in the blanks, follow along. And this is going to be a Bible study that you can do with your small group this week. You can go home. You can study it for yourself. Prophecy fulfillment. And take these notes, go home and study them yourself because it is incredible. So I'm going to be reading the Bible for the rest of the sermon, okay? And so I'm going to open it up and we're going to go through it. And I'm going to be auctioning off Bible verses so fast you're going to think I'm speaking in tongues, okay? Okay, okay. I'm just going to be like, prophecy number one, humming a humming a prophecy two, number three, number four, number five. I'm just going to be like, here's the Bible, locked and loaded, just giving you Bible verses over and over again because I want you to know that the Bible is true, Jesus is real, and life change is possible. So here we go. Prophecy number one. Buckle up, buttercup, because we are diving in. Prophecy number one. 4,000 years before the birth of Jesus, in Genesis chapter three, we see that Jesus would have a mother but not a father. The book of beginnings describes everything that happens. And it's the everything that always happens. That God created the world. He said it is good. And that everything in it is good. And when God made Adam and Eve, he said they are very good. And they were made to be in relationship with him. That God walked with them through the cool of the garden. Everything was peaceful. Everything was perfect. And here we are in 2020. And we turn on the news and we're like, what happened? It is not peaceful and perfect. This is not the way that God created the world. How many of you would agree with that? You're like, this is not the way that it's supposed to be, right? Okay, because it's not. What happened? Sin entered into the world. That Satan comes to our first parents, Adam and Eve. He lies to them to doubt the goodness of God. They disbelieve in the promises of God for their life. They sinned, they fell, they rebelled. They separated themselves from God. And you know what sin is? Sin is separation. And so they run from God, they hide from God, and they separate themselves from God. But you know what God does? Here's what God does and what he always does. God comes and pursues after them. That God runs towards them. They hide, God finds them in the garden, gathers them together, and he preaches a sermon over them. The first sermon ever preached was by God himself. And God preaches in what is Genesis 3.15 known as the Proto-Evangelion, which means the very first gospel. God himself proclaims the first gospel in Genesis 3.15, where he says this, and I will put enemy between you and the woman. 
Okay, that's Satan versus the woman. That Satan is going to war and conflict and clash against mankind and that the Satan will bruise the heel of the son of a woman. But that son would crush the head of the serpent. This is prophecy about the cross and the crucifixion that Satan would be working through human history to destroy the coming of the Messiah and that Jesus would be crucified and that through the crucifixion, his heel would be bruised, but through the resurrection of Jesus, the head of Satan will be crushed to where Satan, sin, hell, death, and the wrath of God will be satisfied by Christ and that the Messiah would take away the sins. And that this prophecy shows us not only the gospel, but also that the Messiah would be born of a woman. Now, this is fascinating, okay? Listen to me. Because this is written 4,000 years ago in an ancient Near Eastern society. In those days, everything was patriarchal. That means it comes to the line of the father. So this would be unheard of in the writings of these ancient cultures because everything comes from the male line. But it says here that this Messiah would be born of a woman with no mention of a father. Now, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary who was a woman. Question, was Joseph his real father? No, he was the adoptive father because the God the father was his biological father. And so even the religious leaders during the life of Jesus, they recognized that something was off about his birth. We saw this in Mark chapter six, verse three, as we were studying, the religious leaders said this about Jesus. They said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Because they did not believe that Joseph was Jesus's real father. Even the religious leaders in the society that Jesus grew up in knew that Joseph was not Jesus's biological father. They actually accused Mary of being promiscuous and that Jesus was the bastard son of Mary because they recognized themselves that he was not the son of Joseph. But this is all to fulfill prophecy that the lineage of the Messiah would come from a woman. Then we pick up in the prophetic line of the patriarchs in 1400 BC, Genesis 17, 19. God said to Abraham, that is the father of many nations, that your, son, your, your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac and I will establish a covenant with him. So Abraham and his wife Sarah, they're up in years, they're getting pretty old. And then God comes to him and said, Abraham, I know that you're like a great, great grandpa and all, but I know you're really old, but I'm gonna make you a... I'm gonna make you a father. Okay, you're old enough to be a great-great-grandpa, but 99 in age, but I'm gonna give you a kid. And, and Sarah laughed and they named the kid Isaac because God always gets the last laugh, amen? And so they have a baby and God starts the covenant with Abraham that the covenant would be the way in which God enters into relationship with people. The same way, whenever you get married, you make a covenant with your spouse that you're gonna love them until death do you part. That's a covenant. And then you have the promises and the fulfillment of that covenant. God enters into covenant with his people through relationship. And he says that through Abraham, I am going to send the Messiah and that covenant will be formed with Isaac and then it goes on with Isaac. He speaks in Numbers 24, 17. I see him, that's the Messiah, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of 
Jacob, that's Isaac's son, not out, or scepter will rise out of Israel. And then Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his feet until he comes from whom it belongs, the obedience to the nation. So you can trace the lineage of Jesus from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and down to Judah. Now, here's why this is so significant, okay? Because the Jewish people, they kept meticulous details of the genealogical records. This is why Genesis has all those genealogies, why Numbers has the genealogies, Chronicles has all those genealogies. You know, the one where you start off at the beginning of the year and you're like, I'm gonna read the whole Bible this year. And then around February, you're like, yeah, this is really boring, right? You say, why are all these genealogies in here? To prove the Messiah, the messianic line of Jesus. See, the religious leaders, they would have known all of this because they would keep meticulous details of the genealogy. And Jesus is the son of David. What does he say here? He says in Mark 12, 35, the son of David. From Mary's line, he goes all the way back to David. From even Joseph's line, goes all the way back to David. This is why Matthew and Luke opened their gospels with the genealogies showing the genealogical line of Jesus through Mary back to David, even further back to Abraham. And then Luke uses his to trace all the way to Abraham, even back to Adam, the son of God himself, that Jesus is the Messiah through the prophetic line of David. The lineage is secure and kept from Genesis all the way through till today. The third prophecy is the virgin birth, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and you will call him the great Christmas verse, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, I don't know if you have seen very many um, virgins give birth. Okay, you ever seen that? No, it doesn't happen. And a lot of people are like, well, I can't believe in God or the Bible because I don't believe a virgin had a baby. Me neither. That's why it's called a miracle. Because if it happened all the time, then everything would be like Jerry Springer. Weird. It happened one time. One time. Only one time a virgin had a baby because that baby was the Messiah, the Son of God. Isaiah says, hey, here's how you know that the Messiah is here because a virgin is going to have a baby. Now, there are some critics of the Bible who say, well, you know, that word virgin doesn't really mean virgin. That word virgin really means young girl. Okay, listen. I'm a dad of two young girls. And guess what? They're virgins. And it's my job to make sure they stay that way until they get married. That's why I lock my doors. That's why I have a gun and why I don't let them hang out with weirdos, amen? Because it's my job to make sure that my young girls remain a virgin. And in Jewish culture, guess what? Young girls, they were virgins. And so you could pick and choose whatever you want, what the word means or doesn't mean. But either way, a virgin had a baby and that's how you'll know because he is Emmanuel, God with us. The virgin birth was prophesied 700 BC. Prophecy number four, 700 BC, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphratha, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who is the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. In the Hebrew, that literally means from eternity past. Now, question. Was Jesus growing up, did he live in Bethlehem? No, he lived in a town called Nazareth. He did ministry in Galilee. He's preaching in Jerusalem right now. 
but he was born in a town called Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was a small, poor, rural, hick town out in the middle of nowhere. Some of y'all, y'all from that town. Y'all, that's where y'all from. Like where the only thing growing up you wanna do is move away as fast as possible. That's Bethlehem. That's Vider, <laughs> Vider, right? Okay, Vider. <laughs> Bethlehem, Vider. Like all you can do is just like get a corn dog and move. Like that's it. That's what Bethlehem was like. And so the census of Rome said everyone has to go back to their hometown, which means Joseph has to go back to Bethlehem. If they did this today, me and my family, we would have to go back to Nova Scotia because that's where my family's from, Nova Scotia, Canada, okay? We might be from Canada, but we got to Texas as fast as possible, amen? And so my great-great-great-grandpa, he came from there to South Carolina. Now we're here in Texas. And so we would have to go travel to go there. Well, Joseph His great-great-great-grandfather was from Bethlehem. And do you know who his great-great-great-grandfather was? King David. And guess where he's from? Bethlehem. And so David tells his pregnant wife, Mary, hey, babe, I know you're nine months pregnant and dilated and your feet are really swollen, but I need you to get on this donkey and we have to make the 100-mile journey to Bethlehem to go pay our taxes. And she's like, ugh. I mean, my wife, she's had two kids. Right? And I couldn't even get her off the couch, much less get on a donkey, okay? So, so, so Mary gets up on the donkey and she starts riding the 100-mile journey to Bethlehem and she's there just long enough to be able to give birth to Jesus and fulfill the prophecy of Micah 5 too. Some people say, well, Jesus just read the Bible and he orchestrated his entire life to be able to fulfill the prophecies on his own to trick us. Who, who orchestrates their birth? Like, how do you do that? I mean, was he in the womb going, uh, hey, woman, I was reading Micah 5, 2 here, and uh, we need to get to Bethlehem pronto. You think that's what Jesus was doing? No, because you can't do that. No one can predict where they were born unless Micah 5, 2 says they were from the eternal ancient of days that God himself has been working outside of human history, organizing and orchestrating these things from the foundations of the world, working through men and women to be able to preserve the prophetic promises and the messianic lineage of Christ himself from the ancient of days. God has been working through all of human history to be able to ensure the salvation of his people. Come on, Jesus. Woo, that don't get you fired up. Your wood is wet. Let's go. Jesus would also be a refugee to Egypt. Out of Israel, I have loved him. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. King Herod wanted to murder all the babies who were born. He provided infanticide, abortion for all of the born children in Bethlehem during this time because he learned that there would be another king of the Jews. And so the wise men who came to Jesus, they said, King Herod is gonna kill the Messiah. And so they took Jesus and Mary and Joseph fled to where? To Egypt. And Jesus grew up as a little child in Egypt as a refugee, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Hosea 11.1. Prophecy number six, 400 BC, Jesus would enter into the temple. Malachi 3.1, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord, who's that? The Lord that you are seeking because the Messiah is the Lord. The Lord that you are seeking will come to his temple, that God himself will come into the temple, that God himself will become a man, that the ruler, the king of kings, the one with authority will come into the temple. And here's what you're gonna see. 
that the messenger of the covenant that you will desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. We see the Yahweh Lord, Tetragrammaton. We see the Adonai Lord, just like we saw in Mark 12, 35. Malachi says the same thing. The Lord will come to the temple, says the Lord. Now, this is very specific because what we've seen already in the prophecies is we've seen the biological, we have seen the chronological, we've seen the family line, and now what we're seeing is the chronological time, that there is a time limit on when the Messiah could come because the temple was destroyed in AD 70. There is no more temple in Jerusalem. There is no more temple in Israel. There is no more religious institutions or sacrificial systems in Israel because in AD 70, it was all destroyed. So whoever the prophecy of the Messiah would be, they had to come before AD 70. Do you see how specific this is? And what we just learned in Mark chapter 11 is that Jesus comes into the temple. And what does Jesus say? My house shall be a house of prayer. Whose house is it? Jesus' house. What does Malachi say? Come into his house. You're starting to get the picture now, right? Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies right in front of their face. The Lord will come into the temple. And then the temple is destroyed because even the temple itself was prophetic about of Jesus, that we don't need a temple because Jesus is our temple, our dwelling place of God. We don't need a priest because Jesus is the great high priest who mediates between man and God. We don't need a sacrifice because Jesus is our new covenant sacrifice in our place for our sins. And all of that was anticipatory of the coming of the Lord Jesus himself. Even the temple that was prophesied is a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. What we see next is this. Prophecy number seven, John the Baptist would prepare the way for the Messiah, a voice calling in the wilderness. 700 BC, Isaiah 43, prepare the way of the Lord. That's capital Lord again, Yahweh. God is coming, make straight the highway for our, what's the word? For who? For our God. Some people say Jesus never said he was God. That's false. That's true. The Bible emphatically declares Jesus is God. Prophecy proves it. John the Baptist comes. Mark 1, we met him. Jesus' strange, weird, Rastafarian, bug-eating cousin living out in the woods, right? That's, that's John the Baptist. And he comes and he's preaching. Repent, prepare the way because the Messiah is coming. The Savior is coming. Jesus shows up and John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Messiah is here. And then he baptizes Jesus, the voice of of the Father speaks. The Spirit descends like a dove. This is my Son, who is Jesus, the Son of God, with whom I am well pleased. Mark 1, we see the way of the Messiah was prepared by John the Baptist. But that's not all. There's more? Yes, there's more. There's much more. Mark chapter 11, Jesus asked the religious leaders, who is John the Baptist? And they say, oh, I have no answer. Because if they say that John the Baptist is a man, they're lying because they knew that he was a prophet. And if they say he was a prophet, then they have to admit that Jesus is the Messiah. They had all of the evidence in front of them, but they refused to believe, not due to the evidence, but because of their own arrogance. They wanted a Messiah in their own making. 
There's so many people where you're just like the religious leaders. You're looking for a savior, but you don't want Jesus. So you turn to other things. You turn to other places. You turn to money. You turn to sex. You turn to fame. You turn to work. You turn to kids. You turn to relationships and marriage. You turn to your good works and good deeds or politicians. You turn to other things looking to save you when Jesus is face to face with you and he is the savior that you need, but you don't want to accept him because you don't want to submit to anyone but him. You have to be intellectually honest with yourself that Jesus is who he said that he was. He is the Messiah. Number eight, Jesus would perform miracles. Isaiah 35, five and six, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue shall be opened and shout with joy. Question, did Jesus perform miracles? Yes. Here's what we've studied so far in Mark. Has he opened the eyes of the blind? Mark 8, 22. What about the deaf? Mark 7, 31. What about the lame? Mark 2, 1. What about the mute? Mark 7, 32. We've even seen the dead be raised in Mark 5, lepers be cleansed in Mark 1, 40, and the poor be fed and good news be preached in Mark 7 and Mark 9. Boom, shakalaka, mic drop, Jesus, prophecy full. Phil, Jesus performs miracles. And here's the reason why. Because Jesus doesn't only want you to know that he is God. He also wants to show you that he is God. All of the miracles were declarations of the identity of Christ himself. Because he doesn't only want you to know he is God. He wants to show you that he is true, both through the scriptures and the power of God in your life. Now, there was a mathematician in the 1970s, who started studying all of this and putting it together, his mind was blown like yours is right now. And so he wanted to figure out what is the mathematical probabilities of one man fulfilling eight prophecies? What's the likelihood of one man fulfilling eight of the biblical prophecies? And so he got together doing all the math things that math people do. I don't know what they do. It's just some kind of equation or something. And so he started doing some sort of math stuff. And he came up that the mathematical probability of one man fulfilling eight prophecies would be the equivalent of 10 to the 28th power. Okay, for those of us who don't know what that means, here's what that would be written out. 10 to the 28th power. That's how likely it is for one man to do that. Okay, now for the rest of us who are not nerds and don't know what that means and have to take off our shoes to count to 20, Okay, he gave us an illustration to better help us understand this as well. So imagine this. Imagine if we were to take a silver dollar and we were to place it 10 on top of one another and we were to do that all across every inch of the great nation of Texas. And we were to lay it all out and then we were to take one coin. Now, Texas is pretty big. We're from Texas. It's like a 10-hour drive from Orange to El Paso, 15 if you stop at every Bucky's on the way, okay? So Texas is really, really, really big. And so you would do that across all of Texas, and then you were to take one coin, and you were to mark it, and then you were to randomly place that anywhere across the state, take a man, blindfold him, tell him you can only pick up one coin 
And the one coin you pick up must be the coin that is marked. The likelihood of that man picking up that coin is the same likelihood of one person fulfilling eight of these prophecies because Jesus is not a man. Jesus is not just a myth. Jesus is more than a man. He is the God man. He is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Amen? That's who our Jesus is. That's who our God is. That's our King. That's our Christ. And that was only eight. I got 17 more to go. Come on, let's do this. Got to hustle. Got to be quick. Got my pre-workout in. I'm ready to go. 500 BC, Jesus would be betrayed. Or no, uh, Jesus lived a sinless life. 700 BC, Isaiah 53, 9. He had done no violence nor deceit in his mouth. Jesus was perfect. Today we would say nobody is perfect. That is true. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, except for Jesus, that Jesus was perfect. No fault, no flaw, no failure in him. Even the religious leaders could not condemn him of sin. He goes and he says, which one of you can condemn me of sins? And they dropped their stones because not one had an accusation against him. Even Jesus' own family begins worshiping him as God. His mother Mary worships him. How many of you moms would worship your son and say they are God? You changed his diaper. You bailed him out of jail. You went to go visit the principal's office whenever he beat up. Okay, you know that your kid ain't Jesus. You know your kid ain't God. But Mary worships Jesus as God. Even his brothers, James and Jude, begin to worship Jesus God. How many of you got big brothers? You got big brothers? You got big brothers? How many of you would worship your brother and say your brother's God? Your brother is perfect, sinless. You're like, no, my brother ain't Jesus. My brother's Satan. That's who my brother is. After all the atomic wedgies and the swirlies that he gave me when I was a kid, you should have seen all the, no, no, no. My brother ain't Jesus. That is for sure. But even James and Jude, the brothers of Jesus, write books of the Bible, worshiping their big brother Jesus as God. They took James up to the top of the temple whenever their persecution was beginning. And they said, James, we need you to get rid of all this nonsense about Jesus being the Messiah. Tell them your brother is a liar. He stood on the top of the temple and he declared, my brother Jesus is God. And they shoved him off of the temple. He fell three stories, got up on his knees, declared Jesus as Lord again. And they bashed his head in with a stick. How can you say a brother would say that about unless they were perfect? sinless son of God, savior of the world. His own brothers and mother worship him as Jesus, as God. This is incredible. We go on and we see that he would ride in on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king has come to you. Who's that? That's Jesus, the king, the Christ, the Messiah, righteous, having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey. This is why I know the Bible's true. Because if I were God, I would come in and I'd be like, hey, I'm God. Everybody bow down before me. That's how I would do it. I'd be like, here I am. I'm God. And I would reveal myself with an army. I would come and I would have an armor on. They would roll up the red carpet. Like ACDC's Thunderstruck would be playing. And I'd just be coming out. And I'd be like, hey, 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 I am God. Everybody worship me, right? But that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't come riding on, a don riding on a horse. He doesn't come with an army. He doesn't come in might and majesty. Instead, he comes with humility. He comes as a humble servant. He comes from obscurity. He comes riding on a donkey. And this is why they hated him, because he wasn't the king that they expected, but he is the king that we needed. 
He comes in humility. Prophecy fulfilled, Zechariah, 700 years before, that 500 years before, riding on a donkey. 12, 500 years, he would be betrayed for 30 by a friend's. 1000 BC, Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend whom I trusted, who I shared bread with, lifted up his heel against me. In Mark 14, we're going to be studying the, the Last Supper, the institution of communion, where Jesus, along with his 12 disciples, are in the upper room. He serves them communion, and here's what he says. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he says this. He says, the one who dips his cup his bread into this cup is the one who is going to betray me. And that's Judas Iscariot. And as soon as Judas heard that, he went out and he betrayed Jesus and he turned his back on him. The one who was close to Jesus, who shared bread with, betrayed him, just like David said would happen in 1000 BC. Prophecy fulfilled. 500, it says that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah eleven twelve. They paid me how much? 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said... Throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they paid me. And for 30 pieces of silver, I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. How much silver? 30 pieces. Not 29, not 31, not copper, not gold, but 30 pieces of silver. Do you see the accurate detail that is involved in this? That even 700 years before, the specificity that God is trying to show you, listen to me, I know what I'm talking about. I am God, I am preparing a way, I am giving you all the proof and the truth and the evidence that you need. I'm not leaving this general or vague, I'm being specific. 30 pieces of silver. Pay attention, watch for this. And then it happened just as Zechariah said it would happen. Judas betrayed him and he asked in Matthew 27, how much are you gonna give me? And they said, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. In Matthew 27, it shows that Judas regretted the decision, tried to give the money back. And they said, we can't take it because it's blood money. So here's what he did. He threw it back into the temple and it landed in a portion of the temple known as the potter's field. The evidence of there, and that means the burden of proof is on you, the unbeliever. The burden of proof isn't on me to whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. The burden of proof isn't on the Bible because the evidence is presented before you. All I'm doing is presenting you the truth. You have to make a decision. How do you justify your unbelief with the claims that scripture itself makes? This is true. This is trustworthy. And you have a decision to make today. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. God has given you everything you need to be able to make that decision. We also see that he would be beaten and bruised. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from them from mocking and spitting. After Jesus' betrayal, they took his body, they stretched it out and tied it to a whipping post. And every inch of Jesus' flesh would be on display. They took what is known as a flagomer or a cat of nine tails, basically a whip with bones and hooks tied into it, and they would flesh the man, and they would beat him until the flesh ribboned off of his back, exposing all of the nerves. This is the scourging that Jesus would go through. And for most people, the scourging was so heinous, they did not even survive the beating that they would go through. And here it says that Jesus would be beaten in 700 BC before Christ. And it says he offered his back. Now, some people, they feel sorry for Jesus. 
They look at Jesus' life and they say, man, that's just really tragic. It's a shame that a man would have to go through those things. That Jesus was a victim of Roman governments. That he was a revolutionary trying to overthrow the man. That he was a case of mistaken identity. It's a shame that they did to him what they did to him. But I want you to see something is that Rome didn't kill Jesus. The Jewish leaders didn't even kill Jesus. It says here that Jesus offered his back, that Jesus lays down his life. Elsewhere it says, no one takes my life from me. Jesus says, I lay my life down for myself. And there's no greater love than that, that one would lay down their life for a friend. Jesus offered his back for you. That Jesus went through shame for you. That Jesus went through pain and suffering and torment and torture so that way you don't have to. Jesus says, put your sin on my back. I'll take that. Put your guilt on my back. I'll take that. Put your pain and your suffering and your condemnation on my back. I give you my back. I'll let you lay your life down on my back so that way you can be forgiven for your sins. I offer you my back freely and they beat him and they abused him and they bruised him and Jesus went through all of that so that we don't have to go through it on our own. Jesus gives you his back so that way you can be forgiven of your sins. The story continues on that his clothing would be gambled for. They divided his garments at the foot of the cross. The Roman soldiers divided the garments. 1000 BC, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. 700 BC, Jesus would be hated and rejected. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men and men of sorrows. He was familiar with suffering like one whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus is like us in every single way. For those of you who feel like sorrowful and suffering, Jesus knows and Jesus understands for he was a man of sorrows. Prophecy 16, 700 BC, that Jesus would not defend himself. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb before the slaughter, a sheep before the shears. He was silent. Pilate asked him, do you have anything to say for yourself? And Jesus remained silent before the one who condemned him to death because all of the evidence had been presented, all of the miracles and signs had proven it, and nothing he had done in the three years of his ministry ever changed their minds. So what would one word do on the final day of his life? So he remained silent before those who accused him. 17, 1000 BC, Jesus' own crucifixion. Dogs had surrounded me. A band of evil men had circled me. They had pierced my hands and my feet and I was numbered among the transgressors. This one is insane. 1000 BC, King David, over the greatest nation of the time, prophesied not only the crucifixion of Jesus, but also prophesied the invention of crucifixion. Okay, this is 1,000 years. Rome didn't even exist yet. The Greeks, they were still wearing robes, taking baths, and trying to find their way out of a cave. Okay, that's a philosophy joke for those of you who are philosophy majors. Finding their ways out of the cave. The Medes and the Persians and the Babylonians had not even conquered Israel yet. David is sitting on a throne in the greatest nation, and he is prophesying into the future the invention of crucifixion, which would not even come along for another 500 years. The specificity of this is mind-blowing. That not only would he invent crucifixion, but he would prophesy Rome itself. Just leave you with that. Jesus' death would be with sinners. 
700 BC, Isaiah 53, 12, therefore I will give him a portion with the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out unto death his life. He poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was crucified between two sinners. Do you know their names? No, you know why? Because they're dead. Okay, we don't know where they're buried because they're dead. We don't have a holiday for them because they're dead. You're not buying your kids Christmas presents because they're dead. You're not going to get dressed up on Easter to celebrate them because they're dead. But we do that for Jesus. Do you know why? Because he is not dead. The wages of sin is death. And because we are sinners, Jesus came to die the death for our sins. And because Jesus was without sin, our sins can be forgiven. And sinners like you and me need not fear death because Jesus beat death. And now we've overcome death through the death of Jesus. Amen? That's who Jesus is. That's our Christ. That's our Lord. That's our King. He would identify with sinners, but he would not be one. 1400 BC, Jesus' bones would not be broken. Exodus 12, 46, do not break any of the Passover lamb's bones. Psalms 34, 12, he protects all the bones and not one of them will be broken. Crucifixion was not a quick death. It was a slow, agonizing, torturous death. Do you know the word uh, excruciating? Okay, that word is actually invented to describe the pain of a crucifixion. Excruciating literally means from the cross. That's what excruciating means, that the death of the cross would take you not just hours, but sometimes even weeks for a person to die. And here's how you would die, through what is asphyxiation, that basically you would drown in your own sweat, blood, vomit and tears. It would fill up your lungs with your own bodily fluids to the point that you choked and drowned on your own fluids. And in order for you to catch a breath, you would have to push down on the nails in your feet and pull yourself up by the nails in your hands just to take a breath. And then you would let it out. And then your whole body would shake in pain as it as you dropped down and it went through your entire body. And you'd have to do this over and over for days, maybe even weeks. But if they wanted to prolong the death or speed up the death, they would break the legs of the victim so that way they couldn't push themselves up. Well, Jesus, because of the beating and scourging he went through, they came on that Friday to break the legs, to speed up the process. And guess what? They didn't need to because he was already dead thus fulfilling 1,400 years of prophecy that not one bone would be broken. With the final moments of Jesus' life, he cries out, it is finished, which means that all of the work is done. Everything is accomplished. The Bible is fulfilled. The prophecies have been fulfilled. I have done everything my father sent me here to do. It is finished. And then he breathed out his last breath and then he died. And in that moment, fulfilling 1400 years that the Passover lamb's bones would not be broken. He died. When they came, there was no reason to break his legs. So just to make sure he was dead, they grabbed a spear. They shoved it through his side. And they hit his heart. They pulled the spear out. Blood and water flew. But in the providence of God, David was right when he said he would be protected. Not one would be broken. The spear missed the ribs. And Jesus fulfilled the prophecy here. We go on and we see that Jesus would be hated and rejected or beaten. Where am I at? <laughs> beaten and bruised, clothes gambled for, hated and rejected, crucified, death with sinners, bones broken, 20, 1000 BC, would not be forsaken by God. Psalm 22, one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? So far from the words of my groaning. The final invitation 
to understand the messianic declaration of Jesus. He quotes David, Psalm 22, 1, Eli, Eli, laba sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everyone gathered at the foot of the cross, they would know what he is doing. He is declaring himself to be the son of David. What does Jesus say here, the son of David? He's crying out David's very own words. Eli, Eli, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason that he was forsaken on the cross where God turned his back on Jesus in that moment is so that God, through the death of Jesus, would turn his face towards us that he was forsaken so that way we can be forgiven. He was rejected so that we can be accepted. Jesus was condemned so that Romans 8, 1, therefore thou, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus was forsaken on the cross so we can be forgiven in this life. One more invitation to the messianic prophecies of Christ himself. 21, Jesus' death. Isaiah 53, 8, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Why did Jesus go through this? Because of your sins. That your sins hung Jesus on the cross, but it was God's love for us that kept Jesus there. He died for our sins because of our sins. This is what... Paul says in Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin so that you and me, we could become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther says this is the great exchange that on the cross, Jesus takes our sins and he gives us his sinlessness. Jesus takes our unrighteousness. He gives us his righteousness. That Jesus takes our death. He gives us his life. That Jesus dies the death for sin so that way we could be forgiven with him in relationship forever. Jesus dies for sin and for sinners like you and me. Jesus would be buried with the rich. Isaiah 53, 9, he was assigned the grave with the wicked and with the rich in death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus was poor. I mean, here's how poor Jesus was. He was homeless and he shared rent with 12 men. Like, you know you're poor when you have 12 roommates, Amen. Right, like some of you are like, I have 12 roommates and I pay $50 for rent, okay? That's Jesus. That's how broke Jesus was. That Jesus couldn't even afford to feed his friends. He had to multiply a little boy's sack lunch just to be able to do it. I mean, he was so broke. Listen, he had to go fishing and pull a coin out of a fish's mouth just to be able to pay his bills. Like, you know you're bad when you're like, the only hope I have is that this fish has a coin in its mouth. Like, that's how bad it was for Jesus, and he couldn't afford his own burial. Do you know what would happen to crucifixion victims? If they didn't have a burial plot, they would be taken from the cross, they would be thrown in a trash pile, left to rot in public. That's where Jesus' grave was assigned to. According to the prophecies, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but Jesus was buried among the rich. Why? Because there was a man named Joseph of Arimathea who was a friend of Jesus, compassionate to the cause, and then he gave Jesus his tomb. But Jesus didn't need it that long. It was like an Airbnb three-day weekend getaway. He just took the keys and said, here you go. Just take the keys back because I don't need it for long. But either way, he was buried among the rich. He was assigned a grave with the wicked but he was given a grave with the rich. That's fulfilling prophecy. I know your brain is, can't handle this. I know your mind is like, Byron, that's enough. That's too much. I can't keep going. I can't keep going. But I got just a few more. Come on, let's do this. 23, 1000 BC. Here's what we read. Is that 
Jesus' resurrection, Psalm 1610. You will not abandon me to grave, nor will your holy one see decay. The wages of sin is death. It's been this way since the beginning. Genesis chapter three, all the way on forward. Everyone who ever lived has died. You will die. There is a 100% chance that you will die. 100% of every person who's ever lived, guess what they do? They die. You can take your vitamins. You can drink your water bottle. You can try to lose weight. So that way you don't have to take your pants off to get things out of your pocket. But either way, guess what's gonna happen? You are going to die because the wages of sin is death. We all deserve death, but Jesus had no sin, which means death could not contain him, that the grave could not keep him, and that Jesus' resurrection is the vindication of everything that he said. Where is Jesus buried at today? Nobody knows. Do you know why? Because he's not there. We didn't need the grave. We didn't need the tomb. We know where Muhammad is buried. We we know where the Buddha is buried. We know where the Dalai Lamas are buried. We know where other leaders are buried. We know where kings of Egypt are buried. We know where Elvis is buried, but we not know where Jesus is buried. Do you know why? Because he's not there. He is resurrected. The resurrection of Jesus is the vindication of all the claims that Jesus said he was. He is not just a man. He is more than a man. He is not a myth. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That's who Jesus is. And following his death and resurrection, Psalm 68:10, 1000 BC, when you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. That we can't make our way to God. No matter how good you think you are, no matter your good works, your good deeds, no matter if you pay your taxes, walk your dog and pick up after him on the way there. You are not good enough to make your way to God. So here's what the gospel is, that God made his way to us. That God would take on the form of a man, that he would be humble and lowly, born of a virgin in the middle of nowhere. He would grow up in obscurity. He would live the perfect life, be hated, rejected, despised by everyone. He would be betrayed and beaten and murdered and mocked, hung on a cross. He would die the death that we deserve. And then he would ascend to the right hand of the Father. And he would go to heaven so that people like you and me, captives in our our sin, bound in our bondage, riddled by guilt and shame, could be forgiven of those things, that addictions would be broken in our lives, that bondage would be delivered in our lives, that our sins would be forgiven. And because Jesus goes to heaven, we get to go with him. He ascended on high. You know what? You're the captive that is following in his train. He brings sinners from the depths of hell into the heights of heaven with him. He ascends on high. And if you're wondering, where is Jesus at today? Where is he at? What is Jesus doing? How do we know he is real? He is not in the grave. He is not on the cross. He is not in Jerusalem. He is not in a museum. He is ascended on high, seated at the right hand of the Father with a place of glory and honor. And here's what David says, 1000 BC, the most quoted prophecy in the entire Bible. He says this, my Lord says to my Lord, God says to God, sit at my right hand and I will put your enemies as a footstool under your feet. And what does Jesus say in Mark 12, 35? 
David himself, by the power of the Holy Spirit, illuminated as he writes scripture, he says, my Lord, my Lord. He says, sit at my right hand and I will place your enemies as a footstool underneath your feet. David himself calls him the Lord. So how is he nothing but a man? Jesus is not a man. He is more than a man. Who do you say that he is? He is more than a man. He is more than a myth. He is the Messiah, the Son of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. That God himself would come and he would live the perfect life that we never could live. That he would die the painful death in your place for your sins, the death that you deserve. He would go to the cross receiving the due penalty and the weight of the wrath of God. God, so that way we can be forgiven, we can be accepted, we can be loved, and we can be reconciled back into the relationship that God always intended for us to have. If you're a Christian, woo, that's amazing. If you're a Christian, this should, you should get jacked for Jesus. That's what this means. You should be fired up and excited right now. You know what it means? The Bible is true. You can trust it. Your salvation is assured. You can believe it, that Jesus is who he said he was, did who he said he did. And when you made that most important decision to give your life to him, you are not a fool. You are wise, and you made the best decision of your life because it changes everything, doesn't it? It changes everything in your life. It changes the way you live. It changes the way you navigate the decisions that you make because every decision hangs on this decision. Who is Jesus? And when you said yes to him, you said yes to the right decision. If you're here and you are not a Christian, you have to really justify why. Is it because of lack of evidence? I've given you more than enough evidence. Jesus is who he said he was. And if you're here today and you don't go home and you read these verses and you are face to face with the reality that Jesus is who he said he was, if you don't go home and you don't do your own due diligence and wrestle with this, the only reason you don't believe is because you don't want to. If there is a God and he is real and you don't do anything about that, that's on you. You owe it to yourself to be intellectually honest enough to go home to read these verses, to read a Bible, and to be able to determine whether or not what you believe is right or wrong. And if you say no, then you just don't care. 